John 5, 16 to 23, hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I too am working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, so this morning, um, we are obviously getting back into our study in, in John and just taking you know, one hack at a time on this massive tree that is the Gospel of John. Um, today we're coming to some of the highest revelation of the Son's nature and the inner workings of His relationship with the Father that can be found anywhere else in Scripture. This, this is one of the, the most monumental, uh, towering revelations that we have concerning the nature of the Son and His relationship with the Father. And, uh, and, and it, is a, it is a beast to try to tackle in order to preach. I was listening to Alistair Begg preaching through this just for some help a few weeks ago, and even he admitted that this passage was so challenging that he couldn't actually even work out a good outline. And, uh, and I felt so much the, the nature of that, like, man, this is just such a difficult passage to outline and work through in a, in a, in a good, orderly way because of how rich it is and, and how deep uh, one uh, statement followed by another, followed by another, how, how, how uh, deeply rich this passage becomes. Um, I've actually, I've felt myself grasping for words and feeling woefully inadequate to preach this passage to you all. And um, J.C. Ryle had some, some very good comments about this section, and if you would, just, just listen uh, to what he had to say before we go into prayer. Um, J.C. Ryle rightly commented that there are, there are few chapters in the Bible perhaps, where we feel our own shallowness of understanding so thoroughly and discover so completely the insufficiency of all human language to express the deep things of God. Men are often saying that they want explanations of the mysteries of the Christian faith, such as the Trinity, the Incarnation, the person of Christ, and the like. Let them just observe that when we do find a passage full of explanatory statements on a deep subject, how much there is that we have no line to fathom and no mind to take in. I want more light, says proud man. Well, God gives him his desire in this chapter and lifts up the veil just a little. But behold, we are dazzled by the very light that we wanted and we find that we have not eyes to take it in. That's my experience of this passage here in John 5. I can, uh, let me just give one admission here before we pray. I can, I can tell you what this passage is saying. What I can't do is communicate to your heart the glory of what this passage is saying. <laughs> Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And... Um, I feel a desperate need for the Lord's help this morning, and, and so in light of that, we need to pray that he would be with us today, that he would open our eyes and help us see wondrous things out of, out of this passage. So would you please pray with me?
Our Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we come before you feeling our neediness, mourning our sins and our failures of this last week, confessing them before you and claiming the hope that we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to make us clean through his blood. Father, we come before you wanting to see more of the truth, wanting to understand more of what your word has to say to us. Lord, coming to a passage like this and feeling entirely incapable of grasping the true meaning and significance of what is revealed here. And so, Lord, we we confess that in ourselves we don't have the strength to approach this passage and and to take it in the way that you want us to take it in. So we come to you, Lord, asking that you would open the eyes of our hearts and help us behold wondrous things out of this passage. Grant us, Lord, that we would have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you that's given to us here in John 5. And help us marvel at the glory of Jesus Christ that's revealed in this portion of your word. Lord, set our hearts aflame. And by your Holy Spirit, ministering your word to us, let our hearts burn within us. Lord, we ask for this grace and we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we come back to John, I think it's important to start this morning just remembering the purpose of John. John 20, verse 31 John tells us that the the purpose of this gospel is to persuade you and me that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we would have life in His name. An important revelation there, just to keep in mind, eternal life, according to this verse, is not contingent upon whether we have been good enough in order to receive it. The gift of eternal life is not handed over to us after we've done all we can do and have proven ourselves to be worthy of it. Eternal life depends entirely upon whether or not we believe the truth about who Jesus is and about what Jesus has done to save sinners like us. Right? That's not this compilation work for salvation and glory that's happening between you and Jesus. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And it's your faith in Jesus alone that is met with the gift of grace and salvation. An empty hand grabbing a hold of all that God has given you in his son. So eternal life depends upon whether or not we recognize the truth about who Jesus is and about what he's done to save sinners like us and whether or not we will own that by faith. We will rest in his finished work on our behalf fully by faith. And as John says here, at the the heart of everything that we must believe about Jesus is that confession that he truly is the Son of God. That's what this gospel is written to prove to us, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we would believe in that and have life in his name. But when we come to a phrase like that, I don't know about you, but very often in my life, I've, asked, I've had to ask myself, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Son of God? What does it mean to believe that Jesus is God's beloved and only begotten Son? Well, let me confess here at the beginning that even the clearest passages in Scripture that address that topic will not answer all of our questions relating to it. But in John 5, we have, we, um, excuse me, in John 5, we come the closest any of us will get to understanding what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God until the day that our faith becomes sight and we behold him in glory with our own eyes. Really, John chapter 5 is a watershed chapter for the rest of this gospel. 
You remember, just to give you an understanding of where we're at in this gospel, you remember from John chapters 2 to 4, what John is, is, is communicating to us by the Holy Spirit in this gospel is really the glory of Jesus' purpose, right? The, the purpose for which the Son of God came into this world. What did he come into this world to do? Well, he came to administer the grace of the new covenant to us, right? Pictured in changing the water into wine, right? He came to usher in the, the reality of a new temple that will utterly sweep away the old temple, right? He, he came to bring about the promise of the new birth for all of his people. He came to accomplish a saving work that would redeem for himself his new covenant bride. A bride which, by the way, includes not only the Jews, but also the Samaritans and the Gentiles. That's what we see happening. That's what we see laid out before us from John chapter 2 to John chapter 4. Well, in John chapter 5, we see the next section in the Gospel of John beginning to unfold before us, which is communicating to us not the glory of Jesus' purpose, but the glory of his person. See, what we have in chapter 2 to chapter 4 is an explication of Jesus' purpose for which he came. What we have from John chapter 5 to John chapter 12 is this unfolding of the glory of the person concerning who, who this Jesus is. See, it's, it's one thing to understand the truth and the glory about what Jesus came to do. But the heart of true Christianity and the secret to living the true Christian life is discovered in beholding the glory of who Jesus is. Very often we seek to live the Christian life as if it's nothing more than a bunch of principles and rules and morality that we must follow. But that's not the secret to living a faithful Christian life. The key to being faithful before God and living in fellowship with the Holy Spirit and walking in the truth of Jesus is found in beholding the glory of Jesus. And it's only to the degree that you see Jesus as glorious that you will find in yourself the strength you need to do things like resist sin to the point of shedding your blood. Speak the name of Jesus to the lost around you who need to hear. Evangelism is birthed out of fellowship with Christ. It's not birthed out of the next new method. To go into hard lands and to preach the gospel to a people that wants to kill you. Where do you find strength to do something like that? Not from a list of rules. You find strength to do that by beholding how glorious Jesus truly is and letting that be the fuel in your soul that motivates you to go. Our Christian lives are shallow in America because we spend so little time gazing upon the glory of Jesus. Right? You hear a sermon that's just lifting up Jesus and, and you, maybe you think to yourself, where's the application in that? Give me the principles I need to go start a good prayer life. and Give me rules. Give me, give me some kind of method. Give me something that I can do. Tell me, okay, all that theology, that doctrine is great, but what are you telling me to do? Beloved, that's where we fall short of living the true Christian life right there. See, the application is given to us in the beholding. When you see Jesus as glorious, when you behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and you feel yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit being transformed from one degree of glory to another, you're no longer asking yourself, what do I need to do? Give me the right principles. Show me the next rule. It's the outgrowth of your very soul that when you see the glory of Christ, the first thing you want to do is, is praise Him. You want to go pray. You want to be in the Word. You want to be faithful in ministering the gospel to others. You want to go stand down on that street corner and herald the glory of the name of Jesus, not because someone's given you a method, but because you finally see Him for who He is. So I, I, think, that, I think that may be one of the best tests of true saving faith. Do you see the glory of who Jesus is? Not, can you tell me what Jesus has done? As important as that is. 
as vital and necessary as it is to have the facts of the gospel, as helpful as it is to have a method behind the madness of the Christian life. I pray in this way. I go through this regularly. I'm, I'm a very Methodistic person. I believe in methods. I believe they're helpful. But as helpful as those things are, the real essence of the Christian life is not found in obeying this rule and following this practice. It's found in, in beholding the glory of the Lord. Really, I mean, that's what John 5, verse 20, is, is, is holding up before us as God's intention for our lives. It's, it's that you and I would come to a point where, where what the Father has revealed of Himself through His Son is causing us to marvel. It's causing us to be in awe. You see that right there. Greater works than these will He show me or will I do so that you might marvel. That's what God wants from your life. Far beyond any, any kind of act that the Lord's calling you to do. Far beyond doing any kind of act of obedience or following some rule. What God wants from you is that you would be in a state of awe as you behold His Son. That, that's the, that's the, 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 the soil out of which an obedient and fruitful Christian life grows. And without that, you've got nothing more than legalism. Dead Calvinism. An empty shell of religion without the power of it. What this passage shows us is that, is that God's intention behind everything that he has unveiled to our eyes through his son. God's intention is that you and I would be caught up in worship by what we see. So as I try to unpack what that is, what that looks like. Be gracious with my inadequacies. I can't make this happen for you. But the Spirit of God can. And so we trust in Him and we pray that He will accomplish His work. Now all that's introduction. Let's, let's get into this passage. Uh, why don't we start looking in our passage today by, uh, by, by noticing Jesus' answer to the Jews' accusation. All right? Let's look at Jesus' answer. How does Jesus answer the accusation that the Jews hurl at him? By now, we're all familiar with what's going on in John chapter 5, or at least those of you who have been here uh, during the weeks where we've covered this passage. You know that in John 5, Jesus chose to heal a sick man of an infirmity that left him crippled for 38 years. And there's nothing controversial about that except for the fact that Jesus chose to heal this man on a Sabbath day. Now the Jews, which is in this passage and most of the time in the Gospel of John, it's referring to the religious leaders of the Jews, the Jewish people in Jerusalem. The Jews believed that healing this man on the Sabbath and then commanding that man to carry his bed around was a violation of God's law concerning the Sabbath. And so in verse 16, it tells us that the Jews were persecuting Jesus and were seeking to kill him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, this was not the first time, nor would this be the last time, that there would be a controversy between Jesus and the Jewish leadership concerning the topic of the Sabbath. Right? You know that. You who have read through the New Testament, you know that this topic comes up very often in the Gospels. So, for example, in Mark chapter 2, we find Jesus' disciples picking grain as they're walking through the field on the Sabbath. And the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes come and they accuse Jesus of dishonoring the Lord by breaking the Sabbath, letting his disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Mark chapter 3, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand, right? And the, and the Pharisees accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. Luke chapter 13, Jesus heals a daughter of Abraham who was hunched over and was not able to, to raise herself up straight. Jesus heals that woman on the Sabbath day. And then in Luke 14, Jesus heals a man with dropsy. That is a man with uh, excess fluid built up around his organs. He heals this man. And it happens to be on the Sabbath. Now every single time the Pharisees and the scribes charged Jesus with breaking the Sabbath. And every single time Jesus responded by showing the lawfulness of what he was doing. 
In other words, he responded to their accusations at these other times in these other situations by showing the Pharisees that what he was doing was actually in accord with God's law. He wasn't breaking the Sabbath. He was doing exactly what God wanted him to be doing on the Sabbath day. So, for example, in Mark chapter 3, verse 4, he asks his accusers, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? Is it lawful to save life or to kill? You see what Jesus is doing there. He's turning the tables on these Pharisees and these scribes. You say that what I'm doing is unlawful. Wait a second. Are you saying that it's not lawful for me to do good on the Sabbath day? Are you saying that it's only lawful for me to do evil on the Sabbath day? Or or, uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 3, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? As Jesus turns the tables on these Pharisees and scribes, he's plainly confessing that he was not guilty of breaking God's law by healing and doing these acts of kindness on the Sabbath day. He was using the Sabbath to do good. He was using the Sabbath to save life. He was healing God's people from their burdens on the Sabbath day. Now, in their opposition to Jesus, the religious leaders were guilty before God of breaking the intention of the Sabbath. They they were using the Sabbath as a reason to do evil, as a reason to do harm, as a reason to continue allowing people to suffer, all in the name of keeping the Sabbath. You see how backwards that reasoning is. Now, I just bring all that out to to just show you that normally, in fact, every other time when this controversy comes up between Jesus and the religious leaders among the Jews, Jesus always defends his actions by saying that his actions were lawful, by showing how they were in accord with the law of God and he was not breaking the law of the Sabbath. However, That is not how Jesus responds to this accusation in John chapter 5. And this makes what Jesus says here really significant. Rather than defending the lawfulness of what he had done for this man on the Sabbath, which, by the way, Jesus is going to do that in John chapter 7. Rather than defending the lawfulness of what he did, what Jesus declares here is that even if his actions had violated the Sabbath, he had a right to do that because of who he is. So even if their charge could stick and they could prove that Jesus really was guilty of breaking the Sabbath, Jesus' answer back to them is that he had a right to do that because of who he is. That's what he says in verse 17. He responds to their desire to persecute him and and, and even kill him for doing these things on the Sabbath by saying, my father's working until now, and I also am working. Now, it's easy for us to miss the point that Jesus is making here, but the Jews understood exactly what Jesus was saying. You see that in verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his own father, making himself equal with God. Now that is exactly what Jesus was saying when he made that statement. That he had a unique relationship with God that entitled him to do what only God was permitted to do on the Sabbath day. That's what he's saying. The Jews knew immediately that Jesus was making a claim to deity when he made that statement. Uh, Just think about that, right? The nature of what Jesus says. To, To call upon God as his father in such a personal way was inherently claiming to share the same nature of God with his father. So just as a son, for example, shares the same nature with his earthly father, that's what Jesus is saying about his relationship with the heavenly father. That he is the father's son. That is, he claims to share the same nature with God. And and shockingly, that is Jesus' defense against their accusations. God cannot break the Sabbath. And Jesus says, therefore... Because I am the son, I cannot break the Sabbath either. 
Now, there was a debate among rabbis that may help us understand the impact that Jesus' words would have had on the Jews at that time. You guys still with me? All right. Jewish rabbis had debated among themselves about whether or not God kept his own law. You guys ever asked that question? You ever thought about that? I wonder, does God keep the law that he calls us to keep? I think that question itself is built upon a faulty assumption uh, about the nature of the law. The the law is the law given to us because it's an an expression of the righteous character of God. (laughs) It's not that he's under the law. It's that he is the embodiment of the law he gives us. But anyway, does God keep his own law? Really, the there, there was an issue in relation to that question when it came to the topic of the Sabbath. Is it possible for God to actually keep the Sabbath day? In Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, we, we find that after God completed his work in creation, it says he rested on the seventh day. That is, he Sabbathed on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Now, that cannot mean that God ceased from doing all of his works on the Sabbath day. Why not? Isn't that what it says? Doesn't it say God ceased from all the work which he had done on the seventh day? Does that literally mean that God stopped doing all of God's works on that day? That's impossible, right? Because even though God was no longer making anything new in creation. He was no longer creating things ex nihilo out of nothing. God still, even on that Sabbath day, had to exert his power in order to govern and sustain everything he had just made. So it's not not like God just built the clock and wound it up and then let it run on its own. That's the heresy of deism, right? God made the world to function on its own in such a way that he can withdraw from the world and the world will continue to go on as he designed it. I won't go into that. Never mind. It's not like a top, right? It's not like he just spun the top of the world and let it run and it's just running on its own energy now, just carrying itself over. Well, that's, that's not the nature of God's relationship with his creation. The God who created the world even on that Sabbath day, had to continue sustaining the world, right? If God had rested on that day from everything that he, from from all of his works and everything he was doing in relation to his creation, then everything he had created would simply dissolve into nothing in an instant. What Jesus says of the Father in, in John 5, 17 is true even on the Sabbath day. My Father is working until now. Every single Sabbath day, God is working to sustain all of his creation. He's working to, to hold all things together, working them out according to his will and unfolding his decree according to his divine providence. Holding the universe together by his almighty power. In other words, there's never a moment when God is not working, even on the Sabbath. And Jesus holds that up to these Jews and he says, even as the Father is not ceasing to work on the Sabbath day, neither am I. The same is true for me. Just as the Father continues working even on the Sabbath, I also am working even on the Sabbath. Now, what I want to do is just think for a moment about the radical nature of that claim. Okay, so that's kind of setting the stage for where we're going to end the sermon this morning. I want to think about the radical nature of what Jesus just said there. Here, in front of these Jews, and by extension, before each one of us in this room, Here stands a man clearly claiming to be God. Claiming to have a unique relationship with God that entitles him to call God his own personal father. Claiming to be an equal sharer with God in the divine nature 
claiming to have the same divine right and the same divine ability to do what God does. Now put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. Okay? Imagine you're there in Jerusalem. You are hearing this man standing before you make this claim to be equal with God. How do you respond? How do you respond? How would you begin to think through someone making a claim like that? Well, I think others have rightly observed that there are really only a few options that we can consider when someone makes a claim of that nature, right? This man is either lying or he is insane or he's telling the truth. He's either lying about this claim, he's crazy, or he's telling the truth. Which one is it? There are no other options than those three options. This is the claim which Jesus confronts the entire world with. He stands before the entire world, before each one of us, and says, I am equal with God. What do we make of that claim? It's amazing. With this one statement, Jesus forces every human being into a corner until he or she responds to what he's just said. And my point with that is that with this one statement, Jesus has set before you a reality from which you cannot escape. You cannot ignore what Jesus has just said here. It happened in time. It happened in history. And if it's true, it has continuing ramifications for how you respond to him now and how you live your life now. Borrowing from C.S. Lewis, right? Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. But he can't be all three. There is no in-between in those categories. And just like what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, 15, he does that same reality for each one of us. He stands before us and he asks us, what do you say of me? What does your heart confess of me? Does it resonate with what I claim to be true about myself? Or is there conflict? Jesus lays this claim before us and he asks us, do you believe me? I want you to understand your eternity depends on how you answer that question. I've heard so many unbelievers claim to be admirers of Jesus. If you do any evangelism whatsoever in our time, you will hear people one after another say, yeah, man, I, I think Jesus was a good teacher. I think Jesus was a good moral man. I think he was misunderstood in his day, but he stood for some good things. He was a good philosopher. He had a great understanding of how to live life and and, and how we should treat one another. You know, you know do unto others as, as you would have them do unto you. That's great. That's, really wis- that's, that's real wisdom. You know, Jesus won't let us stay there. Jesus forces us to go further than that. And I want you to listen. I want you to pay attention. This may be difficult for you to stick with me on, on this passage. But just listen and stay with me here. It's like what John MacArthur said. John uh, MacArthur said, Jesus' claim to be God is either true or it is not true, but you can't say it somewhere in the middle. Good teachers or spiritual leaders don't base their teaching on claims to be God. Crazy people do that. Liars do that. Deceivers do that. In fact, I remember one night in downtown Minneapolis... As I was sharing the good news of Christ with people, one man came up to me with tears streaming down his face. I asked him what was wrong, and he said, I'm just so sad that all these people won't listen to what you're saying. 
I initially thought that he was a Christian. And so I asked him who he was, and to my surprise, he said, I'm Jesus. And initially I said, oh, <laughs> your name's Jesus. That's, that's great. And he said, no, I am Jesus, the one you're talking about. And then he began to use some pretty radical profanity in reference to all the idiotic people who wouldn't listen to what I was saying. Well, at that moment, I knew immediately that that man was either intentionally being deceptive or he was a liar, right? Or he was insane. That's right. But either way, I knew that he was not a good man and I knew that he was not a good teacher. How did I know that? Because good teachers don't make claims like that, right? Unless they're true. Well, here we have Jesus in John 5 basing his entire ministry on a claim to be God. Now, if he's not God, if he's wrong about his claim, then there is no reason for any of us to believe in or follow anything that he ever had to say. We, we, we can't hold him up as a good teacher and as a good philosopher and someone who's a good example if he was lying about being God. That's not a good teacher. <laughs> That's not a good philosophy. He's either a liar or he's insane. But if he's telling the truth, then you and I are confronted with a reality that we cannot escape. And we have to deal with it. And oh, how many ways the world tries to escape from that reality. The human heart craves any reason. No matter how crazy it might seem, the human heart craves any reason whatsoever not to believe in God. Anything that will give my conscience some ease and some excuse to say God is not real. Just think about the insanity of the Big Bang for a moment. Right? Certain elements of creation condensed to a point smaller than a period on a page, in, near infinite in density and in power, all of a sudden explodes. And everything in the universe that is comes to order out of that chaos. And life begins all on its own, apart from the laws of biogenesis. And we, here we are, millions and billions of years later, sentient beings, conscious Walking around, biped, thumbs. Our irreducible complexity just happens to be, uh, the irreducible complexity of our anatomy just happens to be a byproduct of random chaos. How many giraffes had to die? How many heads on giraffes had to explode? Before those, the, the, their, their blood vessels began to, to uh, mitigate the flow of blood rushing down to their head when they bent down. It's insanity. The Big Bang Theory is insanity. There's actually no evidence for it whatsoever. And yet, yet, it's swept upon our culture with power. Why is that? Why were men so, why was humanity so willing to believe something so crazy? Because the human heart craves any reason not to believe in God. How about evolution? That's another fun one, right? Another product of human insanity. There's never been a crossover species found whatsoever. In fact, whenever we look through the, the, the reality of the world around us, what do we find? We find that it corresponds exactly with what God has made known to us in Genesis chapter 1. That God created certain kinds of life. He created certain kinds of animals. He created certain kinds of plants and trees. And they all reproduce according to their kind. There's never, ever, ever been any evidence whatsoever of one kind producing another kind. People point to the random speciation in, in, in dogs as an example of, of mutation evolutionary mutation. See, we see, we see things happening right there before us. That, that's, 
That's insane. That's stupid. That's a bad evaluation and a horrible analogy. Because you're still talking about a dog. It's still a kind. It's a dog. And a dog produces a dog. <laughs> or, or, or fish that get trapped underwater and all of a sudden they start losing their eyesight and begin to develop, begin to develop other senses in that fish that help them navigate their dark environment. What? Oh, see, that's, that's, that's evolution at work. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's the potentials taking over that were already embedded in that fish's DNA. How God created that fish to walk, to, or to, to swim. Fish don't walk. <laughs> <laughs> to live, to survive. It's, it's, it's everything that God has put within that fish beginning to take over in times of need. It's, it's why we all have different shades of skin. Right? It's not because we developed out of different segments of humanoids or whatever you want to call them. We all have the same skin color. It's just a different tone. Melanin. Some of us have more. Some of us have less. Just the way it is. That's that's those who live in, 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 in sunnier, warmer, more direct sunlight environments. What happens to their melanin? What happens to their skin color? It gets darker, right? What happens to people like, like my people, where I came from? What happens whenever they live more in, in northern and, and cold climates? What happens to their skin? Unfortunately, it turns out like this, right? And you get sunburned. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think my neck has finally, finally just darkened up per- permanently. So I'm thankful for that. Maybe I'm thankful for that, right, Dick? Maybe not. One day we'll find out. Skin cancer. You know, this is another one, and I don't want to go on and on with this, but another one I thought of that just, the, the, it's, it's laughable. The lunacy is laughable. What about multiverse theory? Right? Because mathematically and scientifically, it, it actually is impossible for our universe to exist as a closed unit. In other words, Matter and energy have to be uh, imparted to our universe in order for our universe to exist. And so, so rather than following the science and allowing math and, and, and scientific discovery to dictate a belief in God, right? Because, because creation is testifying to us about the God who is there. Rather than submitting ourselves to what all science is telling us and confirming for us, we come up with something like a multiverse. Because that makes far more sense. That there are possibly infinite numbers of universes out there, and and it just so happened that a universe collided with our universe and imparted matter and energy and then set the wheels uh, rolling. You know, the ball moving. Everything started taking over from that point on. And and that's why we're here. Oh, man, that's awesome. That's insanity. Is it really easier to believe in something like that than it is to believe that there is an all-powerful God that created the world because of his own will? You know, the, 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 the sad reality about all of that is that no matter how tightly the human heart holds on to those kinds of crazy theories they still don't solve their problem. Because in every single one of those scenarios, you still have to have something that provided the matter that would explode. You had to have have a first mover, a first cause that was the originator of every other cause. You, you, You had to have Uh, a living being that was able to impart life because one of the dictates of science, real science, is that life never springs from something that's not already living. All of that is just an example of, of, of the craziness that we're willing to hold on to in order to ease our consciences into believing that God does not exist. I would say even so concerning, directly concerning Christ, you have other examples like the Bart Ehrmans of the world 
who try to placate their consciences by fabricating elaborate and historically undocumentable tales of how Jesus became God. This development of myth from Jesus' disciples that he never claimed to be God, but his disciples who came after him elevated him to this position of deity and worship. Now that's not only historically laughable, it's undocumentable, unprovable. You know, all those arguments are, are, are brought to silence forever by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Every single stance we might want to take over and against this claim of Jesus that he is equal to God in power and in glory and ought to be worshipped and honored and magnified even as God himself is. Every argument that poses itself against those claims shatters into pieces at the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no end to the fallen human heart's attempt to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but none of it will prevail against the claims of Christ and the demands that those claims make upon us. That's really the important key here. It's one thing for us to understand that Jesus claimed to be God. It's another thing for us to understand what that means for us. That places demands upon us. Jesus has backed us into a corner of reality from which we cannot escape. And so my question this morning to any of us in this room is why fight it? If this is the ultimate reality that must face each one of us in this room, that already is facing us, then why continue to strive against it? I mean, if ultimately at the end, because Jesus has been magnified as King of kings and Lord of lords, because God the Father has placed His King on Zion, His holy hill, on Mount Zion, because God has already declared to all the nations in the resurrection of Jesus that Jesus is king, that Jesus is judge, and that every single human being will have to give an account to him. Because that's already true, and you are forced into this situation where you have to deal with it, why are you continuing to fight it? Why continue to resist? Because one day, one day, Every knee is going to bow to that Jesus. This Jesus who in John chapter 5 says, even as the Father is still working, I myself am working. I'm equal with him in power and glory and authority. That Jesus is the one before whom each one of us will have to give an account. That Jesus is the one that our own tongues, I want you to think about this. Your tongue, your tongue, in your mouth, will one day confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Isaiah 45, 22 through 25, Jesus, God makes that very clear. Yahweh stands before all the nations and says, Turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved, because I am God, and there is no other. The decree has already gone out from my mouth and it will not return to me that every knee will bow before me and every tongue will swear allegiance to me. That's the motivation of the Father in crying out for the nations to turn to him now because the day is coming when they will be forced to make those confessions in his presence. So my question this morning is why, why resist the realities from which we can't escape. Why resist Jesus as Lord? Why not confess him as Lord and live happily under his throne of grace? He's not a tyrant, right? He's not some unpleasable dictator making unrealistic claims upon us. He is a merciful Savior who promises to be the shepherd of all who will bow before him and submit to his rule. Why fight him? Why not simply submit? Well, the Jews in John 5 were not ready to submit to that claim. In verse 18, they were actually ready to stone him for that claim. They, they were ready to kill him put him to death. 
Now, how does Jesus respond to that unbelief? I just want to state this generally right now. We'll come back to this next week. But it's really significant to notice in verse 19 that Jesus doesn't respond to the unbelief of the Jews by backing down. Jesus doesn't respond to the unbelief of the Jews by backpedaling and trying to say, no, 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 you didn't, you misunderstood what I said. I didn't say I was equal with God. That's not what I said. You miss, you twisted my words on me. It's not what Jesus says. What we find Jesus doing in verses 19 through 20, well, on through verse 30, actually to the end of the chapter, is doubling down on that claim and stating even more emphatically his equality with God and power and glory. Pressing even more weighty claims upon these Jews. Claims that are designed to astound us and to cause us to marvel at Jesus. That's what the point is here. To marvel at Jesus as the Son of God and to worship before him. And that's what we're going to look at next week. Marveling at Jesus according to the will of our God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your rich grace and mercy that covers every step we take. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the clarity with which you spoke to us. These clear claims that you make upon us, over us, and the demands that come with those claims. Please help us reckon with what is true, what is real. Lord, please give us grace to receive reality and not to live in our own fantasy. God, let the walls of our unbelief be demolished under the weight of of your glorious truth revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Father, bless every heart here under your word. Deal with us with where we are, Lord, because you are gracious and compassionate, because you're slow to anger, because you are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, because you keep steadfast love for thousands. Lord, in that same, in light of those truths, would you please move upon us with grace and mercy and bring us to the point where we gladly and humbly submit to such a good and kind and loving Savior. Lord, please fill our lips with praise this morning as we sing our closing hymn for the glory of your name and to the praise of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Here a benediction, maybe an an exhortation from Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to do and to will of his good pleasure. And may he give you grace, much grace, to go forward this week, working out your own salvation with fear and trembling in light of this glorious truth that Jesus is king. Amen. May you go on the peace of his name.